young people, people of color, transgender people oppressed by police violence and discrimination found the limit of their endurance and fought back. And it was called a riot. I'm speaking not of the protests that have erupted across the country since the Memorial Day murder of George Floyd, but the Stonewall Rebellion that began on this day not long past midnight on June 28th, 51 years ago. Along with the obvious parallels, this story has some instruction for us on how change comes about and what we can do to make it come about in the ways we would hope to see. Maybe you didn't learn about Stonewall in history class. I sure didn't, despite growing up in one of the most liberal re regions of the country. So I'll fill you in a little. In 1969, in, 19, in 49 states, it was illegal to commit homosexual acts. The vast majority of US Americans polled viewed LGBT people with disgust and moral disapproval. The most charitable interpretation popular at the time of non-heterosexual orientations and non-cisgender identities was that they were mental illnesses meriting compassion and a cure. Congress had only less than 20 years before seen fit to pass, excuse me, had seen fit to pass and the, and the president had seen fit to sign a law making it illegal for gay people to work in the federal government. So in 1969, the year after I was born, that recently, people of non-normative sexual orientations and gender identities were denied love, work, children, and a chance to be treated with dignity and respect. They lived their lives in secret, in hiding, and often in a shameful tumult of self-loathing. Self it was hard to find community with people who understood them and were like them. But people will always seek out, people like themselves will seek out support and understanding. And in New York City, that happened mostly in bars. Gay bars, like many bars in the city, were run by the mafia oftentimes. And bars that were frequented by gay and transgender and transvestite and lesbian patrons were regularly raided by the police because it was illegal to gather in that way. The cops would look the other way if bribed often enough. In other words, the patrons were victims of extortion and violence by the police. There was nothing special about the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. It was actually kind of a dump, but people of various identities and orientations could meet there at considerable expense and a lot of risk. There are various legends about what happened that night. Some people are alive who still remember it and have recorded the story in many interesting documentaries. If you want to learn more about it, do not watch the feature film Stonewall. It goes right out of the realm of legend and into whitewashed fantasy land. But what seems pretty clear is this. The police raided, 
trying to line people up against the wall and strip them to check their genitals, count whether they wore three items of clothing that in the police's view were appropriate to somebody with those genitals. It had happened so many times. This time, to quote one historian of the event, the queers fought back. The police dragged a lesbian named Storme Delaravi to the paddy wagon. As she was being arrested for being too butch, too masculine, in today's words, genderqueer, she yelled to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? And people began to throw things, certainly pennies and some rocks. Legend says bricks, but that's doubtful. They screamed epithets at the police. They resisted arrest. They formed several kick lines, rockette style, and sang body songs. They were singing for their lives. In this uprising, people of color, young people, transgender and genderqueer people led the way. Now, sometimes this is called the beginning of the LGBT rights movement. It wasn't the beginning. There have always been people of a variety of genders and sexual orientations in all cultures. And sometimes they have been met with expulsion, torture, and death. And sometimes they have received respect, even reverence, as for two-spirit people who are hailed as shamans and wise guides and leaders in some communities. We know that people have always had a variety of ways of expressing gender and sexual desire. But, and there is nothing new about the struggle for recognition, rights, and respect. Zooming in on the 20th century in the United States, three years before Stonewall, right here in San Francisco, there was the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, when people who had gathered at one of the chain Compton's cafeterias in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, who used to hang out there, had enough, had enough of being harassed by the owners and the police who would come running when the owners complained of their taking up too many tables and being their transgender, transvestite, and queer selves there in the cafeteria and they too fought back. That was in 1966. And going back a ways, in 1924, we had the founding of what appears to have been the first open gay rights organization in our country. The United States government shut it down the next year. So Stonewall wasn't the first. It was a spark. The growing tinder pile of oppressed lives, suppressed dreams, all the things that pile up when one cannot live, work, raise children, have a family, have a community that one needs. It had spark after spark falling onto it, and this one, June 28, 1969, it caught. How does change happen when it happens? This is a constant question, something we need to know if we are a people who gather to transform ourselves and each other and the world. We want change to happen in certain ways that we see as necessary. So we need to know what, what brings it about, finally. Well, things are changing right now, we hope.
especially in the matter of racial justice and police brutality. It appears that the spark is violence. Look at the NFL. They have finally said, we need to address the violence against people of color, the injustice of the way policing is done in this country. They didn't say it when Colin Kaepernick kneeled. They said it only this past month. They didn't respond to peaceful protests, but something shifted. Now, who is committing the violence? Probably a lot of different people, and we'll not, we will never know. Definitely, sometimes it's the police. We have that on tape in numerous cases, as well as attested to by numerous witnesses. Sometimes it's white supremacists itching to start a race war, as if we weren't already fighting one. Sometimes it's opportunists just seeking the chance to move into a chaotic moment to break windows and steal things. And no doubt, some violence is committed by protesters. The language we use about what is going on in these violent moments reveals a lot. As Stormy DeLarvery said of Stonewall, it was a rebellion. It was an uprising. It was a civil rights disobedience. It wasn't no damn riot. In other words, it was violence with a purpose. It seems that the turning point there and the turning point that we appear to be in, we hope we are in now, uphold Frederick Douglass's dictum, power concedes nothing without a struggle. The struggle is right out on top now, and power may at least, at last, be conceding something. There's a serious conversation about policing. There's legislation about, about, um, about both police and about um, various other racial issues. Time will tell whether this moment really makes a difference or whether another spark still needs to fall. There's a lot of new knowledge out there among people who have lived fairly immune from police violence and the constant discrimination and disrespect shown for certain strata of our society, who are now unable to avoid the evidence. I learned something new myself from someone who heard my June 7th sermon, the one called The Wounds of Our People. I learned that half the people killed by police are people with disabilities in this country. With 20 to 25% of us having disabilities, that's more than double the rate that one would expect from the population. I did not know that. I apologize for my inexcusable ignorance, and I just wonder what I will learn next. With so much in, in churn, it is a constant learning experience. We are in a time, we hope, of change. And when there is change like this, accompanied by violence, people who speak of human rights, who speak words of justice and peace, principles like ours of peace, liberty, and justice for all, often our voices are decrying the violence. I'm not saying we should go out supporting a violent uprising, but we have to ask ourselves, would power have conceded anything without violence and the threat of violence. This is a difficult place for would-be pacifists to find themselves. 
With due caution about the metaphor of parenting, I want to draw on that aspect of my life for a moment. I, I apologize for the metaphor and its limits because, of course, I don't intend to suggest that oppressed people are children and their oppressors are parents. I'm just aware of a power dynamic and how it plays out in parenting, so bear with me. I'm thinking about the fact that we ask things of our child. You know, let's be honest, we make demands of her. Um, we have a certain amount of power in that relationship. And um, she generally delivers peaceably and uh, fairly promptly um, when we ask her for something. Why does she do that? We had an interesting conversation about this just recently. She's 13 now, and we could have interesting conversations about why do things work the way they do between us and in our family? Well, it seems clear that the reason that things go along pretty peacefully is that we have a social compact. We have a contract of mutual respect. She knows that the things we're asking are pretty reasonable. If we can't give a good reason why you should do this or that household chore when, you know, everybody would rather do something more fun than a household chore, well, then she might balk. But we're pretty reasonable, and she's reasonable too. We see that there's a mutual respectful, mutually respectful community being built there. Now, what if we didn't have that respect? What would she do then? Well, we could still probably get her agreement by threatening force, by threatening punishment. We're going to take that phone away. You're going to be grounded. I guess that doesn't really work right now. Everybody's grounded. And, you know, many people hit their children or threaten to. And force works, too in getting people to do what you want them to do. It works until it doesn't. For example, people who out and out abuse their children into doing what they want them to do, they're usually quite successful until the kids get big enough, strong enough, and confident enough to fight back and realize, you know what? I can hurt my parent as well as their ability to hurt me. No, I think it's better to have the respectful the respectful compact that we have. But that's not what we have had in this society when it comes to race relations. For example, and you can find, I can direct you to many recordings of this, oftentimes police simply bully people, especially white police with people of color. They demand respect in their words, really they mean deference or something even more slavish than that, and I use that word deliberately. Just walking through the neighborhood or driving by, they call out, what are you looking at? To someone who's just talking with friends on his own front stoop, demanding that the person put their eyes down and speak meekly in order to show respect. The respect is not mutual. There is no social compact there. It's built on force without an agreement that demands are reasonable and the parties respect each other, you get a new level of struggle. You get violence. You get violence that is just under the surface being met by open violence. I would like to believe that purely nonviolent resistance works. And you can look at examples where it has worked amazingly well, including in our own country, in the civil rights movement. Amazingly disciplined, nonviolent resistors, able to 
stay peaceful, even as they were being beaten by police with batons, even as if they were being, even as they were being attacked by, by fierce dogs and knocked over with the force of fire hoses. And so Martin Luther King is held up as an example of how we can organize a movement of nonviolent social change. All of those things, they, they pricked the conscience of the nation and, and urged the president, LBJ, and the Congress into, into movement. But it has to be noted that while these nonviolent protesters were working, they had more, uh, they had other organizations alongside them. Malcolm X was standing behind Martin Luther King in the minds, surely, of President Johnson, in the minds of the people watching these nonviolent protests. The movement spoke softly, but others were right there carrying a big stick. So is that why it worked? Is, is it because people in power thought, if we don't deal with people now, if we don't respond to Colin Kaepernick while he is kneeling, we're going to have to respond to people who are burning things in the streets. Is that why it worked? In part, probably. And now that the Voting Rights Act that was brought about by those protests has been all but repealed, now what will work? The lesson from our relationship with our daughter and from Emmanuel Acho, who spoke to us so eloquently, is if quiet requests work, that's all that will be needed. If words make a difference, words will be enough. That happens in a relationship of mutual respect and care. If words are not enough, if they are met with disrespect, if they're ignored, if they're met with mockery and violence, things will escalate. For many, many years, for generations, people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities have lobbied and spoken and begged and shouted, why don't you do something? <sighs> Douglas's struggle that he speaks of, the struggle without which power concedes nothing, as he says, it can be a moral struggle. It doesn't have to be a physical one. And that's where those of us who are generally spared the direct effects of oppression come in. The moral struggle is in the heart. When someone says, why don't you do something? Change can happen right then, right there. Power can make a concession. Those who are holding power and those who, who just benefit silently by others exerting power on their behalf. Change can happen in the heart with no physical struggle, no violent uprising, but if we balk at the moral struggle, if we are not moved by people asking politely and then urgently, do something, then we are more likely to face a physical struggle. We can only expect violence in response to the violence committed day after day in our name and by our paid officers. I mean here by our people like me, people who carry a lot of privilege in this community, 
by virtue of our color and our culture. And you know, if there is a physical struggle, the moral struggle must still be completed. You don't get out of it. William Penn said, to delay justice is injustice. Or as Martin Luther King put it, justice delayed is justice denied. We will have to repair the damage caused by injustice. And the longer it goes on, the greater the damage. It is so heartbreaking to read about Stonewall, to think about the progress of the last 51 years, and think about those who lived and died before they got their rights. And now that perhaps, perhaps at last change is happening in this country regarding police brutality, regarding racism, there's the heartbreak of every hashtagged name those who have died and will still die at the hands of the police, who will suffer from our official bigotry against people with disabilities and people of color before we finally stop delaying. As Douglas said, find out just what any people will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact amount of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them and these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. Change happens. Either when the witnesses, the vast silent crowd, stops being silent, stops being complicit, and instead recognizes the quiet submission and says no more to the injustice and wrong imposed upon their neighbors. Or change happens when the people being oppressed endure no more and rise up. At Stonewall, it took an uprising to awake the conscience of a nation. The struggle is not over and LGBT, LGBT rights and acceptance and celebration proceeded to this point by fits and starts, but there is no question that we have come a very long way in one or two generations. Now, once again, People of color, especially black people, are shouting, why don't you do something? What will it take to awaken our consciences now? 